Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back to the pod blacklisted by God, the one devoted to angels, demons, and everything in between. That's Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only podcast history of the devil. I'm Klaus Yoder, and with me, as always, is my friend and partner in heresy, Travis Stevens. Travis, how are you today? I'm really excited to be talking about nerdy things again with you. Yeah, I know. We really we lost our roots for a while there uh, with all the pop culture. Uh, we really needed to hit the stacks hit the archive, go through the dusty books, all that. That's that's who we are. That's our that's our identity. So yeah. It's our mainstay. Yeah. That's what keeps us honest. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what and it's what the people want to hear. So this week we're tackling one of the heavyweights of theological history, especially in the Latin speaking Western Church, Augustine of Hippo. <laughs> I can't do it now. Saint Augustine <laughs> Saint, Saint Augustine of Hippo. Um, maybe the hippo gives away the magnitude of his influence. Uh, <laughs> Augustine was born in the death throes of the old Roman Empire. He lived from 354 to 430 of the Common Era in and around North Africa with some stints in Italy thrown in there for good measure as he advanced his career as an orator and teacher of rhetoric. So Augustine's life story is pretty famous in part because he got control of the narrative early on with his spiritual autobiography, The Confessions. And Klaus, I was thinking maybe you should do the same. I don't know if you've thought about this, but maybe you need to start, you know, penning your (laughs) memoirs now. Just a heads up. So for those of you who have survived parochial school or an intro to Christianity class, surely then you've had to endure some of Augustine's navel gazing by this point. Yeah, for sure. God knows you and I have uh, the basic the pairs. Out- it's all about the pairs. <laughs> the pairs. Yeah, don't the the pair is the as the recapitulation of the garden and the tree in Eden for sure. Um, anyway, the basic outlines of Augustine's story run like this: His mother Monica is a devout Christian, and Augustine's raised in that tradition. It's generally thought that he and his family were Berbers, an indigenous group native to the region around what is now Algeria, uh, because of his and, and, and like throughout northern uh, Africa. Because of his rhetorical skill and intellectual ambition, Augustine drifts to other spiritual and philosophical movements, specifically Manichaeism and later uh, Neoplatonism. We've discussed the former in an early episode and Neoplatonism keeps cropping up and I think we'll have more to say about it soon, maybe like a mini episode or something. But suffice to say now, Neoplatonism continues and expands upon Platonic philosophy, especially especially around the idea of the one and the ensuing metaphysics, cosmology and psychology that results from this cosmic metaphysical singularity as the origin of everything. Augustine was interested in Manichaeism, but never advanced far up the org chart. And it didn't hurt that Emperor Theodosius I made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire and mounted a persecution against Manichaean monks. So yeah, not maybe not a coincidence. I don't know. 
So, yeah, it's, I, I love that point, actually. It's like, well, the political stars sort of aligned at that moment. And yeah, maybe not an accident that he found his way to Christianity at that point. So anyway, after years of struggle to find an intellectual and spiritual path through the world, in 386, Augustine really commits himself to Christianity. And he tells the story of hearing a voice that tells him to take up and read Holy Scripture. And that turns out to be the book of Romans, chapter 13, verses 13 through 14, which I know all of you have memorized, but I'm just going to read it out for Klaus, who doesn't. So, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering, love that, and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. <laughs> Thanks for that translation, by the way. Amazing. Thank you, Wikipedia, for sponsoring the pod. Um, <laughs> this particular verse is really important for Augustine because lust was something he battled not so successfully throughout his youth and something about which he felt an enormous amount of shame and a humiliating lack of control. And this is how he goes on to describe lust and sexuality again and again and again through his analysis of Genesis. It's about not having control of your body. Uh, so to flip to a page in the Bible and find this text, this is like sort of called bibliomancy, uh, stichomancy, uh, pretty cool words. Talk nerd to me, Klaus, yeah, talk <laughs> nerd to me, yes. Uh, prompted to do so by this quasi-angelic voice, or maybe it's the Holy Spirit. And it really hits him really, really hard that it's about lust. The context for this spiritual conversion is that Augustine's other young thing, hot young thing friends who are like advancing in the imperial world of, of oratory and politics and administration are just like starting to throw their professional lives away. They're really into Athanasius's biography of St. Antony, uh, which we've treated at least twice in this podcast when talking about monasticism. And so they're they're just ready to like give it all up out of spiritual enthusiasm. It's almost like I, I almost picture like uh, the biography, the life of St. Anthony is like this great comic book that all the nerds are sort of gathering around. They're like, I'm going to go be, I'm going to live my life like Batman. Maybe that, maybe that sort of takes us into right wing paramilitary group activity. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's sort of how I imagine it. Uh, and so Augustine's in this crew that's really, really obsessed with uh, possibly doing cosplay of St. Anthony. And all this peer pressure starts to push him, I think, a little bit back into the fold, even as he struggled with the other spiritual and philosophical traditions that he presents uh, after the fact as not being satisfying somehow. So just to rewind a little bit back to bibliomancy or stichomancy, what we're talking about here is, as I understand it, a practice where you flip open, you know, your scroll or your book, if you've got something bound, of holy writing um, in an effort to find deeper wisdom at what in a practice that seems like it's at random. Where are you opening to? You don't have control, but you just kind of randomly open the book and fate or the divine is supposed to lead you to a particular piece of wisdom. And that seems to be the practice that Augustine used at the prompting of that divine voice, which brought him to that text that we read for you. So around this time, Augustine had just ended a 15 year relationship with an unnamed concubine from Carthage. Why, you might ask? Well, he was going to marry someone rich instead. What a prince. But his, 
What a prince, what a winner. But his loyal lover had already given birth to a son, Adeodatus. So that's important to keep in mind. Another key influence for Augustine at this time was the Bishop of Milan, Ambrose, a master of both rhetoric and imperial politics. I think it's important to say that Augustine got his cushy post teaching rhetoric in Milan through his Manichaean connections. So he was still buddy-buddy with some, some powerful Manichaeans, and they helped hook him up with this cushy post. Ambrose's skill in negotiating the church's relationship with the empire, as well as oratorical talents, made him a formidable presence and impressed Augustine, who hitherto had thought that preaching style, the church was pretty lousy, that there wasn't a lot of sophistication, there wasn't a lot of classical learning. Ambrose turned all that on its head for him. Ambrose baptized Augustine after his conversion in the garden in Milan, uh, accompanied by both Augustine's mother, Monica, and Augustine's son, Adeodatus, and they left together to go to Italy so they could return to Northern Africa. They were already in Italy, but they were on their way back to Northern Africa. Monica dies before they could even begin the voyage, and then shortly thereafter, in what is... uh, what is now around like Anaba, Algeria, and Deodatus dies too. So you have like these really fast succession deaths. And I I know that the death of Monica is an important part of the confessions. I'm not the Adeodatus death doesn't really stand out as being really registered in that text at all to me, which is uh, makes me like it even less, I guess. <laughs> um, but his friend his friend's death is like a super big deal, right? Like his bosom yeah. buddy. Yeah, like that yeah. death matters. And then, you know, it, yeah, it's just hard to sympathize with this guy. But yeah, anyway, anyway. Please, go on. Yeah, yeah. So right after all this personal loss and tragedy, and I guess being silent about personal tragedy like is, is actually a human thing too. So maybe we shouldn't be too hard on him for that. We can be hard on him for plenty of other things. Uh, but this is when he gives himself over to the priesthood. Uh, he's also... he gives away one of the, they seem to have had a ton of money he gives away one of the properties on his estate for a a monastic order we, there still is the the augustine order of monks uh and and augustine is the founder of a of a of an order of monks and i think this is the origin story for that um augustinians what what yeah, yeah. martin um, luther they martin didn't actually, luther, they didn't actually sponsor this episode though no so no we no don't need to talk about no them. but yeah martin yeah. luther who we'll get to in maybe 10 years uh Famously an Augustinian monk. Um, So anyway, uh, it's around this time that he starts bringing his considerable rhetorical powers to bear in preaching the gospel, following after Ambrose. And he saw preaching as not just a boring lecture, PowerPoint, but a really crucial device for winning souls. It's it's not just me talking pretty, but it's me saving the day for your soul. Uh, He rose in the ranks of the North African clergy to become the bishop of Hippo, Hippo Regius, or now, as I mentioned before, the modern city of Anaba uh, in present-day Algeria. So as we'll demonstrate below in just a bit, Augustine's theological project was conditioned by conflicts and controversies. He goes from arguing for the freedom of the human and angelic, also, will, early on, when debating his old co-religionists, the Manichaeans, yes, love them, to asserting predestination against other Christians, a group called the Pelagians, who thought that the human will was capable of perfecting itself morally and spiritually. And of course, Augustine 
disagrees with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and to understand his theory of the church or ecclesiology, we go to yet another kind of rhetorical battle, this time with a group we call the Donatists, who were North African Christians who rejected and separated themselves from any Christians, especially any priests, who had buckled under imperial pressure and the threat of death and martyrdom and renounced their faith, but afterwards wanted to rejoin the church. Those people who were like, went through all this persecution and, you know, they didn't want to die, but then they came crawling back to the church. Um, the Donatists didn't want to have to and anything to do with those folks. You need to maintain that purity for them, especially if you were a priest. Augustine was having none of that theology. Augustine wanted to forgive those who returned to the flock, and in so doing, he articulated a concept of the visible church as a mixed community of sinners and saints who experienced God thanks to the grace of the sacraments rather than the moral standing of the priests. This was key because his opponents saw these quote-unquote traitor priests as ineligible to administer the sacraments, which, for Augustine, blasphemously degraded the holiness of the sacraments themselves. In other words, it's the sacrament that's holy, not the person waving their arms and um, administering the sacraments, the kind of liturgical figure, not important. The morality of that person, not important for the efficacy of the sacraments for Augustine. Anyway, this visible mixed church was matched by an eternal invisible church of the spiritually elect. So enough said about his biography and ecclesiology. Let's get into why we're really here. Did the man have any sympathy for the devil? So we almost have our greatest hits list coming on when it comes to these patristic episodes. Like, and I think the next song on the playlist is, uh, what about the watchers, Augustine? (laughs) (laughs) Love that hit tune from Klaus Yoder. So excited about it. So, you know, he is not into the watchers myth for a whole host of reasons. One of them is most important for him, and it has to do with the timing of when he thinks the devil and the demons fall. It keeps getting pushed back earlier and earlier, and that's a worrisome fact for Augustine because it elevates the risk that the devil is as primordial as God, and that's such a no-no for him. Yeah, but he really pushes it as close as he can. Uh, But we'll come back to that shortly. Maybe this episode, maybe next episode, we'll see how long this, this... how long we blabber on for here. But there's like another thing going on here. Augustine also rejects this idea from the Watchers story that the Watchers seduce human women, that that they could be tempted to have sex at all. Um, So like trying to like, and this will, and we'll get into this, but this also goes into how he thinks sexual attraction and passion works. He thinks it's a consequence of the fall. He thinks the fact that certain people like make you like physically aroused is God's punishment for disobedience. (laughs) Uh, And so that wouldn't have applied to the angels or especially the, the good angels and the way this watcher story is told because it's it's angels who are working for God that fall, not demons who fall, right? That, that wouldn't make any sense. But Augustine does think that maybe they do have bodies. It's not that they don't have bodies and that's why they can't be sexually aroused. It's like they have airy bodies. They have this, this there's different kind of substance which constitutes their physical presence. Uh, and 
what's weird is that later on, theologians writing in Augustine's tradition will use that very concept to say, look, this is how this is how demons and succubi and incubi have sex with human beings or have this kind of pseudo virtual creepy sex with human beings. Wow, that is so much to unpack. Can't, can't wait to can't wait to get that. to that. Can't wait till we get to that. Yeah. Mm, or or can we? Um, so we got these airy bodies, not to be confused with hairy bodies, <laughs> different different thing. Um, but the the sons of God language from Genesis chapter six that other Christians just used to read as angels actually here meant something closer to godly humans. Well, godly until they're not anyway. And Augustine reads the part about giants and thinks, giants? You think having giants proves that they're angels or calling them giants proves that we're dealing with angels here. Please. We got giants all over the place in Rome and angels have nothing to do with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wonder if this dismissal and... I think people could be forgiven for seeing, for mistaking Augustine as almost doing a secularizing gesture in this to sort of say like, oh, this isn't really supernatural. This story isn't really what you make of it. There's like, there's a rational explanation for all of this. Um, but it's like this moment where we're seeing the Watcher's myth being put to bed, at least for the time being. And we should be on the, the watch out for any resurgences or renaissances of angel, human, miscegenation. Um, but yeah, it's amazing that a story so central to explaining evil through like most of the podcast so far is being cast by the wayside, uh, pretty abruptly. And I, I guess we've been building up to it, but to see Augustine, Augustine really just has like no patience for it at all in a way where previous church fathers really were like, had to deal with it a little bit more. Okay. So another one of our favorite topics in terms of the greatest hits in the playlist of patristic demonology, the question of when exactly the devil fell to earth like Trump's shuttle. Did he see humans and get Boom. jealous? Slam. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a fall you're not getting up from, but did the devil see these humans and get, and, and get jealous of them? Like the way Irenaeus kind of lays it out or what, what sets him off Travis? Well, like so many of the other early Christian writers that we've talked about, this is yet another kind of early Genesis-obsessed Christian. You know, we're talking chapters 1 through 3, the Garden of Eden version, plus that early story about the days of creation. And when discussing Genesis and the whole part about God separating light from darkness in chapter 1, Augustine will read this allegorically as the separation of good angels from bad angels. In the same way that darkness is the absence of light, evil for Augustine is the absence of being. So it is defined by its lack. And here I'm going to feel really smart because I get to use secret theological code language because that is referred to as the privative account of evil. See, didn't I just sound really smart? It, I already sound smart just by saying that. Yeah, on the Zoom video, you just you, like you became enlightened, like a flash of light just appeared, and mm. yeah, everything makes sense. Everything makes is making sense. a lot more sense right now. Okay, great. So, before we get too far, uh, I think this is a good place to mention that Augustine doesn't really think in terms of systems. There isn't a user's manual for Augustinian theology. Uh, almost everything there is, and this guy wrote so much. I mean, I think he may have. He may be one of the most prolific writers ever, but it's always occasioned by some theological controversy or another. 
So when we're talking about what Augustine thinks about such and such an idea, it's always him in the middle of some bar brawl of an argument that affects things. And it means he's not terribly consistent all the time. So that part you just mentioned gets discussed towards the end of his career, sort of late Augustine, in the mammoth city of God against the pagans. Right? Even the title of that book is set up as a fight. De suitate dei contra paganos. The city of God versus the pagans. <laughs> and the crowd goes wild, right? It's a fight. Anyway, Augustine wrote this in the middle of the collapse of this little thing you might have heard of called the Roman Empire. Rome was sacked by the Vandals in 410. And it wouldn't be too long before Odoacer deposed the last official emperor of Rome, the child Romulus Augustulus in 476, though this was after Augustine's death, 476. That's the date they always make us memorize. Anyway, this was really traumatic. Christians like Augustine, they had their critiques of Rome, but it would be roughly similar to the destabilization of living through the collapse of the USA, even if you hated its politics and settler colonial legacy. You can think back to how Christians like Tertullian could argue that Christians were really good for the empire. You know, he's trying to sort of mainstream Christianity at that point. But now the empire is gone. And conversely, you can also think of how the empire was really good for Christianity as measured by the number of converts, which for the record, I think is not a great way to measure what's good for a religion. Yeah, maybe a fair point there. So Augustine takes his emotional turmoil and spends hundreds of pages blaming pagan Rome for its own shortcomings and destruction, contrasting the city of God with it as one particular iteration of the city of man, aka the city of the devil. Augustine doesn't buy the watchers, but like Justin and Tertullian, Origen, and I guess like everyone else, he saw classical Greco-Roman religions as all being invented by demons. So we're going to have some consistencies with earlier ideas in this episode, but Augustine really puts things in a form that influences the Latin-speaking part of Christendom going forward. So you mentioned the city of God against the pagans, which describes two cities, the city of God, duh, and the earthly city, the city of the devil. And this long book sums up a lot of Augustine's ideas about the histories of these two cities and the demonic neighborhoods get established relatively early. Yeah, they're really traditional, nostalgic, ethnic enclaves for demons. I think that's that's what's going on in, in the city of God and city <laughs> oh, temple. Oh, Lord have mercy. But first, we need to wade into that bog of a question about how to account for the causes of their evil. Of course, Augustine is committed to the idea that everyone is responsible for their own moral situation. But he can't convince himself that the angels would have fallen if they all knew how great it would be to be hanging out with God in beatific rapture for all time. So the explanation that Augustine gives is really exemplary of a kind of proto-scholastic way of thinking, as well as the knots theologians have to tie themselves into to talk about evil and the devil. So he postulates that God granted a group, not all, but a group of the angels illumination, that is to say, knowledge or assurance that they would enjoy this blessed state of basking in God's presence for all eternity, that there was nothing to worry about. From the other group, he withholds this illumination. There's a group that doesn't get the cookies. Both groups have free will. They're both morally responsible beings, but one has like this, this extra juice. It's like the way you're relaxed 
doing some high pressure thing, like taking a test or like maybe doing something in athletics, when you know you can redo it if you need to, you perform better in some cases, I guess. Maybe some people love the pressure. But I think there's something to be said about performing better when suddenly the stakes are really low. And that's what happens with the angels near the very start of time, according to Augustine. They, the ones who don't have that assurance, they don't perform so great. But crucially, it's still their fault for Augustine. <laughs> yeah, we can talk later about how much we think any of this makes sense. It seems like stacking he's still stacking the cards in favor of one group, which to me robs them of a kind of pure freedom of the will that he is also really trying to assert here. And it's all about it's all about he he wants to hold on to the freedom of the will, but he I think he can't make himself understand how anyone would choose not to stay in that that beatific state. I think that's the point. He has to postulate something to account for how it could be possible that anyone would choose not to be blissfully happy for the, for all eternity. I think and he sort of put himself, yeah, he sort of put himself in a corner with the problem of angelic foreknowledge. You know, part of the definition for Augustine that is just immutable for some reason is that angels can see something of the future. And that's why, that's the problem he's struggling with in that section of um, how could you possibly turn away from God when you know the ending of the story? Yeah. So yeah. in an earlier statement on all this stuff in his Genesis literal commentary, which is actually what I was drawing from, Augustine writes that the devil fell at the earliest possible moment from pride, from feeling good about his own ability to be happy and powerful. And in contrast to what he writes in City of God, in this work, Augustine claims that God does give the devil and his bad angels the opportunity to accept this illuminating assurance that they will be happy forever if they just snuggled on up next to the Trinity. And the devil's like, screw that. But later in City, he seems to simplify the story when God just withholds illumination for those angels. We need to find some time in this discussion to pin down Augustine on his theory of predestination because he maintains that it's the angel's fault, but God wills it all as part of the big, beautiful divine plan. Anyway, his views evolved. Consistency is really overrated. So the thing about this that really delighted me was that Augustine is giving a rationale to assure people that the devil, that there isn't going to be a second devil, that this isn't going to happen again, that, that because the angels who stuck around had this illumination and foreknowledge, they have no possible rationale or, or motivation, any remote desire to launch another celestial rebellion. Like it's, Augustine's like, man, people are, maybe people are worried there's going to be another one. Um, and I, I just think that's a kind of amazing. There, like there's not, there's not going to be a new Satan popping up in the angelic choirs. Like this, like this is, this is the, this is the image of terror that he's trying to uh, address for his flock. I just think it's hilarious. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Do I sense a sequel here? Satan part two, angelic chorister goes rogue. Yeah, that will slay at the box office, clearly. <laughs> but probably it wouldn't be a picture that Augustine would endorse, nor Tertullian, though Tertullian doesn't think there should be anything like a movie or a play ever again, so you have that. But for right. Augustine, both angels and demons are locked into their roles after the fall. 
there's no going over to the other side. And I feel Wait, like so really... they're like child actors who, you know, they get like typecast, <laughs> typecast. and then they're forever, you yeah. know, little Jimmy or whatever. Yeah, okay, yeah. They're like, it, this, this is the Macaulay Culkin of the Angels situation here. Yes, but though, yes. Yeah. Uh, this takes us to the question of timing. We mentioned Genesis in the beginning and such. And it's really, really close to the beginning of everything when Satan and the bad angels fall. Like the separating of the light and darkness on the first day of creation bit. And, you know, Augustine's trying to be brave here. He's taking on the thorniest parts of the tradition. And in particular, he doesn't shy away from the Johannine sections of the New Testament. So in the Gospel of John and the letters, much is made of the devil being a liar, a murderer from the beginning, it says. Right. And we'll get into the Manichaeans more, but he's doing this as a way, I think, to counter the Manichaeans. We potted over a year ago about dualism and the Manichaeans, and Augustine is taking verses from the New Testament that seem to give some credence to the notion that there's two substances, two kingdoms, two a good God and a bad God, like opposed to each other from all eternity, good versus evil. Dualism's episode, total classic. And he was a murderer from the beginning. This 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 very strange line from the Gospel of John from the letters seems to square with that in a certain way, right? Yeah, for sure. If there are two substances and God made both, then God is responsible for the devil's evil. And that's a problem, right? So Augustine kind of wanted it both ways. The devil and the fallen angels are responsible for their own sin, but this God is also the God of predestination, a God who loves Jacob and hates Esau kind of just because. Or if we want to give a more generous reading, maybe it's a way to assert that God is exercising and has free will by choosing the, the surprising twin, for example. I, I don't know. But consistent with what we've seen so far in this show, evil is something that has some use in the big plan. Augustine writes that even the wicked will is a strong proof of the goodness of the devil's nature. Um, and that's from City of God 1117. Like... The devil's ability to screw things up shows that he has some oomph, all on loan from God, and even in Augustine's words, caused by God. Ooh, it's tricky, these distinctions he's trying to make here. This all adds up to what we might think of as a Christianized Manichaeism in Augustine that has a profound influence on the tradition going forward. And by that, we mean a version of dualism that creeps into Augustine's rhetoric as he's sparring with these opponents who are deep, deep dualists. Um, but that kind of comes into Christian language here explicitly. And because Augustine is so influential, we see this in future generations and of theologians. Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. It's gonna, it's not gonna go away, folks. Uh, that's why, that's why we're gonna keep making this podcast. But uh, one reading <laughs> of this debate between Augustine and the Manichaeans uh, represents Augustine as endorsing an ethical, psychological dualism instead of a cosmic dualism. So, like the divisions in your mind, in your spirit, rather than in something like built into the deep architectural structure of the universe itself. This tradition goes back to a work we haven't really discussed from earlier, The Shepherd of Hermas, which posits a good angel opposed by a bad angel in each of us, each struggling against the other side inside the human personality. And it's kind of like like a dumb cartoon, like, I don't know, like Looney Tunes or something where like the good angel and the bad angel pops up on each shoulder, that kind of thing. 
Origin has this idea in in his works. Origin's got angels all over the place, like cities of angels, hence demons. Uh, each each nation has an angel, but you also have these two little angels uh, fighting inside of you, like uh, Lilliputians. Um, it's also in the Dead Sea Scrolls, so this it, it, we see this a bit. Anyway, the main error of the Manichaeans for Augustine is that they couldn't conceive of God's nature as different from our own. They anthropomorphize too much, in other words. They make God like just like a big person. Evil only seems like a real thing when we're obsessed with ourselves for Augustine. Like we can only, we, we see it as something that's real, as something with substance when we are just looking at our own experiences and, and navel gazing. Not that he could ever be accused of that, of course, right? Uh, okay, <laughs> well and good, but how does he demonstrate it? How does he prove it? The Manichaeans knew their scripture just as well as he did and pointed to the Johannine lit to show that Christianity's own revealed sources endorse substance dualism. So what does Augustine do to counter them? Well, it's a rhetorical strategy, right? He places himself as close to the Manichaeans while preparing to draw some fine distinctions. For example, he asserts that Adam is born twice, once in the creation by God, and then, quote, when he consented to the devil, he was born of the devil, and all whom he begot were like himself. And that's from homily number four on the first epistle of John. Hence the necessity of being born again. See how he's mixing language that suggests both choice on the one hand and a natural condition like being born. So here he's, you might say that he's muddying the waters a bit. Evil is chosen and born into, in a certain qualified sense at least. The other thing he likes to do is qualify key terms like beginning. In some places, Augustine says this only refers to the beginning of humanity. In other places, and like that would be like that would almost push us back to like the Irenaeus, the devil's jealous of humans kind of bit, or things we saw in the life of Adam and Eve. So I'm not really sure how much of a winning strategy that is. If you want to keep maintaining that the 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 angelic rebellion happened pretty early on, but in other places, when addressing the idea that the devil did not stand in the truth from the beginning, Augustine pushes his free will excuse: the devil could have stayed in the truth if he wanted to. From the beginning, then, just means from the beginning of when he started sinning, which might be a bit too cute. <laughs> it's like a little bit, okay, tautology stacking time. Uh, <laughs> this, is how, this is how he dances around this charge of substance dualism with, with uh, flights of fancy like that. But something else I wanted to touch on is how he treats the anti-Semitic context and content of the Gospel of John chapter 8. We talked about this uh, about a year ago. Remember how the eudeoi in this chapter, remember this word that can, it's translated sometimes as Jews, but could also just mean people from Judea, which need not include all Jews. Uh, this, so th those people, the eudeoi in this chapter, are defensively claiming their genealogy to Abraham and even back to God, God's self. Augustine reads this so that the Jews are children of Abraham with respect to what he calls the fleshly genus, like like physically, literally in some sense, but they failed to imitate old honest Abe's faith. And we talked about this with Christianity and race a few episodes ago. Spiritual genealogy can trump what we think of as genetic ancestry in a kind of physical way while doing a lot of the same work. 
And this is also true of modern racism, like the Nazis and stuff. Like everyone sort of associates modern racism with kind of a, a, a bad biology, but the Nazis were obsessed with like the spiritual qualities of the race. So like you get you get that spiritual side even in in modern uh, racialized projects, like the sort of obsession with the Aryan spirit. Um, we might even say you see that with the obsession with what. Uh, Christian culture means for the United States these days. You, you can sort of see it go in that direction too. Um, and so when Jesus accuses the Udeoi of being children of the devil, Augustine glosses this and adds in by imitation, not birth. In other words, they weren't born demons. Otherwise, the Manichaeans would be right. Like if you're born a demon, then it's God's fault or there are two gods. And that's supposed to be comforting, I guess. <laughs> But later, when discussing the famous epithet, Father of Lies, Augustine writes that in the same way the Father begets the Son in the Trinity, the devil begets falsehood. So he makes it seem accidental in the first place, but then by comparing this to the Trinity, I don't know, that makes it seem like pretty eternalizing. And, and people who are then doing the false thing seem to be genetically related to the devil thereby. Yeah, that comparison to the Trinity just seems so problematic on a number of in a number of different ways. Um, you know, it's a temporal. It sounds like it's a temporal device. It's meant to be a temporal device or getting around the temporal problem of this. Um, but I, oof, just maybe not the greatest place to start. Anyway, can I ask you a question about um, this? Like we can said, can I ask you a quick question about this quickly? Yeah. Like, so yeah, do you ever see this where people are like, "Oh, that's a homily," so like we don't have to take that as seriously? Is that like? Yeah. It, it, in medieval stuff, like, is that, do people make that yes. move? Yes. So Beverly Kinsley, for example, is a sermon studies scholar. And so everybody who studies sermons gets this like, oh, well, that's not real theology, um, which I think is enormously problematic on a number of levels. This separation, particularly in these time periods of this kind of elite theology versus like what's happening in sermons, which you know, if we care at all about Christianity as lived outside of um, these most elite circles, then we should care about sermon studies. So it doesn't mean that, you know, there's not a sensitive rendering of what it means to be interpreting the Bible for people in in sermons and homilies. But I think we have to do better than this kind of blanket dismissal. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. And especially how important Augustine thought sermons were for for saving your soul. Like, it seems like you would, that's a built-in rationale for taking it seriously. Anyway, I, I thought, I had the feeling you might have, you might have something to say about this. So yeah, thanks. <laughs> yes, yes. I usually do have things to say about things. Um, <laughs> especially keeping in mind the problem of the human genus after the fall. So like the devil, the sin that causes humanity's fall for Augustine is pride. And he even imagines it transpiring before the forbidden fruit scene. There needs to have been a predisposition for that sin. It can't just kind of come out of nowhere for Augustine. So that's interesting. But what's really wild and super influential is how Augustine asserts that this original sin is passed down through pregnancies that are the result of lustful sex. I mean, first of all, I hope that people enjoy their procreative sex. I mean, like, good on them. <laughs> but, like, it seems so sad if you're doing it the Augustine way, which seems to be, like... <laughs> Free from lust and desire entirely, this mechanical thing that happens. It's like whatever. it's like it's like a, a manual for for uh, a marriage guide from Cardinal Dolan of the New York uh, Diocese. Uh, Sex the Augustine way, uh, a guide to oh <laughs> a guide to Catholic procreation. <laughs> but 
I mean, like, of course, you pointed this earlier. The problem with Augustine and sex is that bodies are inherently not under your control. It's particularly the mechanisms of, and we should say, male arousal for him. That is the sign of the fall. Like, you know, spontaneous erections are proof positive. And so, like, how do you, anyway, whatever. Okay. Augustine is a key figure in linking original sin to lust, for sure. Even if pride precedes lust. Pride and lust are really related. You're kind of enjoying yourself too much. But Augustine gets to this argument through a mistranslation of Paul from Romans 5.12. And the accurate translation here is, sin came into the world through no one, through one man. <laughs> I was just all over again. I think like sin came into the world through no one. <laughs> through no one. It's amazing. It's so much better, actually. Okay, I'm going to try again. Sin. No. Um, <laughs> I'm keeping that. <laughs> so, I obviously grew up in Texas, and this um, this preacher we had when I was a kid was Buddy Miller, Brother Buddy, as we used to call him. And people literally left our church because they couldn't understand his English. Like native speakers of English were like, "I'm sorry, I don't know what he's saying at all." Um, so, but I don't want to mock him. But he would definitely say sin came into the world. So, but we're going to try and say it the way I would say it, which is sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men in that because all men sinned. However, Augustine renders this as in whom, that is Adam, all men sinned. So everyone is sinful because Adam contained us all seminally, Ugh, this is getting so weird. Like we're literally in the balls of Adam right now. Like, that's where we. That's that's where I'm choosing to spend my my morning. Apparently, anyway. And the trace of this transmitted sin from the protoplast is the lust that goes along with sex. We inherit this lust. Oh, in this like weirdly biological way. The result that we also inherit from Adam is that we all die. Fun sex equals death. For as an Adam, all die. Mm, yeah, mm. yeah, that's the same passage. Sorry, I'm remembering a poetic translation. Okay, mm-hmm. go on. And if we're thinking about Christian anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism, which the difference between those can be pretty tough to parse sometimes, but we'll just we'll just leave it there. We see how original sin is only overcome by divine grace through the operation of the Christian faith, and so Jews are left out of that crucially bound to original sin, and then furthermore, their falsehood, which they electively buy into and serve, is constantly being respawned by their anti-Trinitarian father, the devil. So this is like pretty dangerous, right? (laughs) Yes, Klaus. Yes, I think it is. Augustine's ideas about the Jews had a huge impact on the position of Jews in Latin Christendom in the North Atlantic for centuries to follow. In Book 18 of City of God, he describes the Jews after the rise of the church and describes the witness doctrine. The idea that the Jewish community is to be preserved or barely tolerated in Christendom. Augustine presents this as a divine mercy to the enemies of the gospel, because through Jewish opposition, Christianity is birthed. So this sets up the theological justification of ghettos and segregation in Europe that would persist into modernity. But if we use this to extend the logic of the diabolic genealogy, it would seem to imply that the internal foreigner communities of quote-unquote enemies are also diabolic 
in the way Augustine specified in his commentary on John. And we can see how this ambiguity, Jews need to be preserved, but they are the devil's children, gives rise to all kinds of violence. So, having discussed the very cheerful but super important topic of anti-Semitism and its legacy, we want to pause here and come back to the rest of Augustine's demonology and diabology in our next episode. So, thanks for listening. And see you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you. Thank you.